Hey guys, Pastor Jurgen here. I'm so glad you're tuning into one of our powerful messages that is guaranteed to absolutely elevate your life to another level. At Awaken, we only want to preach fresh, real, powerful to help you grow stronger in your walk with God, develop your faith so you can take more territory. I'm praying that God blesses you and enriches your soul as you listen to this amazing word from God. God bless you. Welcome, Beho, 11 o'clock service. Happy Father's Day to all of the dads and all the dads to be in the house. I want you to grab your neighbor on your right and your hand, grab their hand and, uh, and raise it up in the air and repeat after me. The person's hand that I hold is so loved that you sent your son to set them free. I pray today we both would encounter your love so that out of our hearts would flow rivers of living water that would be used to heal others, leading them back to your house. Amen? Amen. You guys can be seated. It's such an honor to get to preach on Father's Day, and I'm so grateful for this church and the great examples of fathers that, uh, that are here with our pastor, Pastor Jurgen, has helped me so much heal a lot of my father wounds from my birth father and also has really taught me uh, how to love my adopted father. And my adopted father, Nick Irvin, is here today hearing me preach live for the first time with my mom and uh, could not be more excited to, uh, to have you here. I love you so much. Um, so, you know, we talk a lot about forgiveness in this church and encourage people to forgive others. It's like a big part of being a Christian is being forgiving, that we are forgiven so we forgive. But one thing that we don't teach that much on is how to actually receive forgiveness. And it's something that I've seen throughout the Bible, but it was highlighted to me today, and I know it's a word that God wants to get to his church, because I had a whole different message prepared. And God does this to me frequently. I think it's just, you know, a sharpening that happens, but I had a message that I was so excited about, was going over with, with Jenny in the car on the way to marriage getaway. I was like, gosh, it's so perfect, and then... And then there was just that little Holy Spirit pivot. So literally before the nine o'clock service, during worship, during the preview, I'm like back in the green room scribbling notes for this message. But I also know that God works in our preparedness. That when I'm prepared and God decides to move, it doesn't freak me out. It's like I'm prepared so I have something to fall back on whether he shows up or not. But when he shows up in those moments and there's just this little steering that happens, it's this beautiful thing that we get to do together in relationship. And that's ultimately the with God life that we get to have as Christians if we're willing to let him take the lead and not get so freaked out about it. But it happens in preparedness. You know, there's a, a verse that promises that God will give you the desires of your heart. He knows your heart better than you do, and he knows what's good for you. It also says that every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord. So God will not always give you what you think is going to fulfill the desires of your heart. It doesn't say that God will amen all of your plans, but he will give you the desires of your heart, which sometimes means canceling what you think is going to be the best way to fulfill those desires. Does that make sense? So... I've been like camped out in the story of Jacob and Esau in the Bible. And I preached a few weeks ago here a message on Jacob and Esau. And I thought I was done with that story. But then driving back from marriage retreat, God was like, but wait, there's more. And he showed me something in Jacob and Esau at the end of their story 
about how Jacob was unable to receive forgiveness from his brother because he had uh, a lot of undealt with stuff in his life. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the story, Jacob and Esau are Abraham's grandchildren. They're the two sons of Isaac. And when they were being born, they were twins. Uh, Esau was born first, and then Jacob reached out of the womb to grab Esau's heel to try to pull him back in so that he could have the rights of the firstborn. And throughout his life, he was always competing with his brother. And it was a problem because Isaac loved Esau. Esau was like the man's man. He was strong. He was a good hunter. He liked to be out in the field. He was probably good at sports. He was like the guy's guy. And the Bible literally says that Isaac loved Esau. But his mom preferred Jacob, and Jacob was more of a mama's boy. He liked to be in the kitchen. He was probably vegetarian. And I don't say that as a slight against vegetarians, but it's talking about like Esau loved to eat like meat stew. And then, you know, in the story, Isaac makes a lentil stew. (laughs) But he spent a lot of time in the kitchen, and so I'm sure the lentil stew was very, very good. It was so good that he used this lentil stew when Esau came in from the field, probably as a teenager, to, and was starving and was like, oh my gosh, if I don't eat something, I'm going to die. Jacob's like, hey, I've got this really sweet-smelling lentil stew. I will trade you your birthright for a bowl of soup. What do you think? And he's like, oh, my God, I'll do anything. Just give me the food. And he tricked him into selling his birthright for a cup of soup. How many of you know that teenagers don't always make the best decisions? You know, Jacob found Esau at a weak moment and got him to trade his future for a bowl of soup. Teenagers don't always consider the far-reaching consequences of the things that they've decided to do. And there are some people in the world that would take advantage of teenagers' inability to make proper decisions and would offer them a false sense of hope in exchange for their future, getting them to sell their birthright, their future, and the future of their family for something as worthless as a cup of soup, saying, this is gonna make you happy, this is gonna give you what you need, No, this is going to rob your future. I'm not going to get into it, but anyway, Genesis 33, uh, verse 1, is the end of the story of Esau and Jacob. And at this point, uh, Jacob stole Esau's birthright. Later, he tricked his father into blessing him with the blessing of the firstborn son. This destroyed the family. Jacob went into hiding, and just like he sowed, Uh, he sowed dishonesty, he sowed uh, treachery, he went into uh, indentured servitude to a treacherous guy that also tricked him and kept him a servant for 20 years. Now, we've ended the 20-year mark, and the story of Laban is, like, really funny. Jacob was in love with this girl, Rachel, who was beautiful. Laban had this other daughter with a wonky eye named Leah, tricked Jacob into marrying her and then continued to keep him as a servant so he could eventually get the other girl as a wife as well. But all of this went on for 20 years. And eventually, Jacob and his wives escape this, uh, this treacherous man's house. And Jacob hears that his brother Esau is coming for him with an army of 400 men. They had a broken relationship. At the end of it, he still believes that the relationship is broken. He is terrified for his life and the life of his family, and he goes and has a moment with God. And he ends up wrestling with God. God dislocates his hip, but then he won't let go, even though his hip is out of socket and says, you've got to bless me. He gets a blessing from God. And then is like, okay, I'm just going to send all of my stuff 
to try to appease the wrath of my brother. I'm going to send him a peace offering, giving him the best of my livestock, all of the things that his blessing bought me, I'm going to give back to him, hoping that he's going to spare my life. And so we pick this up in Genesis 33, 1. Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming, and with him were 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants, and he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last, because he figured if they were going to get slaved, at least he would try to give the ones that he loved a fighting chance. Then he crossed over before them and bowed to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Esau didn't come with a sword. He came with Forgiveness. He wasn't interested in killing his brother. He was interested in restoring the relationship. And Esau lifted the eyes and saw the women and children and are like, bro, is this your family? Who are these with you? So Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants came near, they and their children, and bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. And afterwards, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. And then Esau said, what do you mean with all the company who I met before? What do you mean with like all of this stuff that you sent before you? And Jacob said, well, uh, this, is, this is all the stuff that I got from stealing your birthright. I'm, I'm just trying to give you this stuff to try to find favor in the sight of my Lord. He never refers to him as his brother. He's now just referring to him as Lord. He's giving him honor that he never gave to him before, but it's doing nothing to restore the relationship. He doesn't have to fight for it. This guy has already given him. He's like, I, I love you. I'm not looking for all of that stuff. God's already blessed me, even though you like tricked me, even though you stole from me, it didn't matter. God still chose to bless me. I don't need your stuff. I just want you. And Jacob says, no, 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 please. If I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand as in as much I have seen your faith as, face as though I have seen the face of God and you were pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. So he urged him and he took it. And then Esau said, I'm so grateful to have you by my side. Let's go journey together. Let's go, and I'll, I'll go before you with all, all my armies. I'll protect you. Don't worry. But I want us to go side by side because we're brothers, and this means more to me than anything. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are weak and the flocks and herds which are nursing are with me. And if men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. So let my Lord go ahead before his servant. I'll lead on slowly at a place which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord and Seir. And Esau said, listen, I've got more than enough. And if this is seriously a problem, I'll give you my strong guys to go ahead of you. I, let me leave you with some people that are with me. But Jacob said, no, 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 I can't. I mean, I, I can't. Just let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, and Jacob journeys to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booths for his life, livestock. And so there's parallels in this passage to the parable of the prodigal son. Jacob went not restoring relationship by admitting that he'd done something wrong. He just tried to overwhelm his brother with gifts, thinking if he just gave back what he stole, but he never admits that he did anything Wrong. He just tries to give honor, but honor without relationship is just weird. So Luke 15, 17 through 24, when the prodigal son comes back to his father, when he realizes that the way he's lived his life has utterly failed him and left him broken and eating pig slop and dreaming of being back in his father's house, though he doesn't believe that he's worthy to be called a son, he just wants to be back in his father's company as a servant. 
He came to himself after squandering his inheritance and he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him just like Esau. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out my best robe and put it on him. Bring on a ring, my signet ring. Give him authority back in the household and put sandals, give him purpose. Put sandals on his feet and bring the catted fat, cat, fatted calf here and kill us and let us eat and be merry. For my son that was dead is alive again. He is lost and is found. And they began to be married. So, what Jacob got wrong and the prodigal son got right was the need to actually confess the wrong. That Esau and Jacob's relationship was never fully restored. Jacob went on to his sons became the nation of Israel and Esau's son became the Edomites. His grandsons were the Amalekites that were like a thorn in the side of the Jewish people forever. But the Edomites went across the world and they became the warring tribes that were around the Mediterraneans. They say that the Spartans and the early Romans were Edomites, that the Assyrians were Edomites. And even the god Odin in Norse mythology, his name comes from Edom, Odin. And it's the sons of Esau, that they were men of war. Hebrew historians say that if you don't have the sons of Esau on your side, you will not, uh, you'll not be successful in battle. And there's some tribes that have been grafted back into the nation of Israel, but so many are on the outside. And still to this day, Israel wars at the sons of Esau because Jacob didn't know how to accept his brother's forgiveness. Make sense? You with me? So my message today is called The Art of Being Forgiven. And just like we don't talk a lot about being forgiven, there isn't a ton of teaching that shows us how to walk out repentance in a practical way. When I came to Christ, I thought the word repentance just meant confession. That when I did something wrong that I would just confess it. But that's only the first part of repentance. I didn't understand that repentance wasn't just a one-time confession. That it was a process of turning from the wrong that I had done back into relationship with God and towards restored relationship with people. I got a great definition for repentance this weekend uh, from Brian Ricewig out at the marriage getaway. He said, repentance is unilateral ownership of a breach of trust. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, it says, for the kind of sorrow that God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. So there's two words that they use for grief or sorrow in the New Testament. The one that leads to repentance is called metanoia. And it means that I have acknowledged what I've done is wrong and it's broken my heart that I've been separated from God and man and I'm turning around back into relationship with God and towards relationship with man. The worldly sorrow that they talk about there is the word metamelomai, and it just means regret, but it's a selfish kind of regret. It's a regret that says, I'm, I'm sad that it didn't go well for me. That when Judas betrayed Jesus, he had metamelomai, he had regret over what he did, but it wasn't true repentance. It was just he was sorry for himself. It didn't lead to repentance without regret where there's restoration of relationship with God and with man. It just led to death. Make sense? You with me? Okay. I know it's like heady, so sometimes it's a little quiet. It's good. I'm with you guys as well. So... Uh, Hosea, in Hosea 4.6, uh, it says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And a lot of times we talk about faith as being the opposite of fear. And they're actually like pretty similar in some ways. They both have to do with the future. 
But faith is believing that with God, all things are possible and the future is bright. Fear is believing that I have to do it on my own and my future is bleak. Both of them are about believing something that we can't see about something that's yet to come. Faith leads us towards God and believing that he is going to do the humanly impossible, that he's with us. If he's with us, who can be against us? I've got this, he's got this, this is gonna be good. Fear is believing that what has happened in the past or what is going to happen in the future is going to be bad. And fear is the number one tool that the enemy uses to keep us from the presence of God. That if fear grabs on to a little bit of regret, it turns into self-pity and pulls us into the past. If fear grabs on to a little bit of anger, it turns into resentment and also pulls us into the past. If it's fear just by itself, it gives us anxiety for the future. But whether we're in the future or we're in the past, we're not present. And when we're not present, we can't experience the presence of God. We're blinded by something that is not true, that is a lie, a deception that we've fallen under where we can't be present. And when we're not present, we can't experience his presence. And it's where the enemy wants us because the, the enemy's battlefield is the battlefield of our mind. And when we are a prey to fear, we're out of the presence of God. But the Bible says that uh, it's when we are still, not just physically standing still, but when we have a stillness in our spirit, when our mind is still, when we're not in the future, when we're not in the past, we'll know God. But the enemy doesn't want us there, so he uses fear to take us out of there. And it says that my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, Hosea 4, 6. Uh, that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God, that knowledge of the Holy One results in good judgment. Wisdom will multiply your days and add years to your life, Proverbs 9, 10. So I wanna give you some very practical things from God's word to walk through repentance, to restore relationship with people, to accept restoration of relationship with God. Does that make sense? Okay. So step one of this process is to seek forgiveness from God. And in order to do that, I have to realize that I can't do it on my own. In, in Christian circles, I think the word guilt gets kind of a bad rep. But I wanna give you some context because if you've ever stood before a judge and his gavel has come down and he has convicted you, the conviction is being pronounced guilty. We dress up guilt with this Christianese term conviction and says, oh, I feel so convicted about this. I feel so convicted about that. But what you're really saying is, I'm guilty. Now, if it was up to me to overcome my guilt, if it was up to me to repair everything on my own and to earn back all of the things that I've lost out of stupidity, out of selfishness, out of wherever that guilt originated, I know with as much time as I've spent on the earth that I can't do it on my own. And believe me, I've tried. So accepting salvation is really just saying I can't do it on my own. You know, if you run away from sentencing, if you've been convicted of a crime, but then you go on the lam and you go down to Mexico and you change your name and do all of that and never step up to sentencing, you will just prolong your suffering and never really get to experience life as it was meant to be lived. You, you lose all of your rights as a citizen of this country and have no hope of restoration until you go back before the judge and say, hey, I'm guilty. I ran, but I'm sorry, and I'm here to accept my sentence. The difference with Christianity from every other faith is that when we come before the judge, somebody has already fulfilled our sentence for us. And the acceptance of salvation is just saying, I know that I'm guilty. I'm here, your honor, to accept my sentence. But then Jesus steps in and says, I've already paid the price. 
you're free to go. But if I never step up in front of the judge, I can never be set free. Does that make sense? So step one is seeking forgiveness from God. 1 John 1, 8 through 10 says, if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. Make sense? Okay. I need to know that I need a perfect savior, a perfect older brother that'll come back in my place. And in the story of Esau, Esau went first. If you look at the two older brothers, the one in the parable of the prodigal son who stayed back at his father's house was like, I'm not my brother's keeper, that's not my job, he's your son, you go deal with it. And then his father goes and deals with it, forgives his son, and the older brother resents his dad for it. That's not the way it's supposed to go. Esau went first to restore the relationship, dealt with all of his internal stuff against his brother, and I'm sure there was a lot because initially he wanted to kill the guy. But 20 years had passed and he had somehow gotten enough healing that he could be a Jesus in the Old Testament to go first and say, listen, I don't need anything from you. I've got everything that I need. There is nothing that you could do to right this wrong anyway. Don't even try. It's already forgiven. I have given first. I gave you up to God a long time ago. I'm not hanging on to my anger. I'm not hanging on to any of that. I just want us to be good because I love you. And I need to know that I need a perfect older brother to do that when I realize that I can't do it on my own. That's the only way for me that it made sense for it to work out. So you got it? Okay. So step two is to choose to forgive others. Matthew 6, 14 to 15 says, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your father will not forgive you of your sins. It seems a little bit different than sometimes what we're told when it's just a message of all grace. And it's true. God has forgiven us eternally. But James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. He's cornered the market on salvation and we may be saved for eternity, but here on earth, we receive healing when we reconnect with people. And there's no real way of doing that without first receiving, in my experience, receiving knowing that I'm forgiven by God and that because he's forgiven me, I'm going to do the same to others. That sowing and reaping works in this principle. If I want to receive forgiveness, there may be a whole heap of forgiveness and there is more forgiveness at the foot of the cross than there is ability for me to screw up in my life. But I need to show up and I need to take hold of the forgiveness that he has given me. And I do that when I forgive others. When I sow forgiveness... I reap forgiveness. Make sense? Okay. So there was a uh, there was a gentleman in the recovery fellowship when I was uh, when I was in my twenties that gossiped about me in the most horrific way that I have ever been gossiped about. He accused me of things to others to try to destroy my character, thinking that he would look better if he made me look awful. And he did all of this just to try to get with my ex girlfriend. It was the most deliberate, awful thing that anybody has ever done to me up to that point, at least as an adult. And when all of this kind of fell apart, he was exposed, his lies were exposed, it was a whole big drama that ended up vindicating me, making me look like a hero, making him look terrible. I celebrated. But I still hated him. And we're in the same community together. So I'd see him all the time, and when I saw him, it was like I was perched on this beautiful, perfect throne way up high on a mountain that was actually pretty cold, looking down at this poor sack at the bottom of the hill. And the best I could offer him was pity, but there was no forgiveness. 
in my heart, I wished him loaded. My life would be so much more convenient if I just didn't have to re-experience this emotion all the time and he was just gone. And eventually I got my wish. He got loaded and it was reported back that he overdosed several times on opiates and thank God there was somebody there to revive him and he didn't die. But I hit a rock solid wall at about 10 years sober because God had delivered me from drugs and alcohol on the floor of a Starbucks bathroom on May 20th of 1995. I knew for a fact that I could do nothing to change my life and that my life needed to change dramatically. And I prayed to a God that I didn't know and didn't completely understand, but I believed was there. You know, I, I'd gone to church as a little kid, but I'd lost faith in Christianity when I lost faith of the other supernatural characters that adults had told me about. I put them all into one basket, and I had a little bit of bitterness thinking that I need to do it on my own. But at this point, I believed that the universe didn't create itself, that it wasn't spinning onto a destiny of nothingness, that there was a divine order in things, and that the divine order couldn't have come out of chaos. I believed that God was there because there were moments when I was still, whether I was out in the ocean or in a forest where I could feel something that was bigger than me. But at that point, that's all that there was. And in this moment of desperation, I reached out to a God that I hoped would hear me and just say, said, God help me. And there was something that happened in that moment where I felt his presence and I knew that everything was gonna be okay. But you know, God's a gentleman and he won't go where he's not invited. And he also doesn't just heap everything from your past on you in one moment. If he did, I probably would have lost my mind. But I gave him my drug addiction, I gave him my alcoholism, and I still thought if I just managed well in my relationships, in my business dealings, if I just made enough money, if I just got a job, if I just got a title, if I just got all of these things, if I was just able to figure out my life, then my shoulders would drop, then my skin would feel like it fit right, then I would arrive. And I had hope in all of my own ability for about 10 years. It takes a while to get to the end of hope in things you think you can do for yourself. And I was pretty hopeful. I'd just gotten sober. The world's ahead of me. I'm not like debilitated in addiction every single day. And I'm thinking, well, now I've got a chance. I got accepted to a great school. I had a lot of things going for me, got great job after great job after great job. And at 10 years sober, I realized that none of the things that I could do were going to bring me a piece that I desperately needed. And so I jumped ship from my life. I ran away from all the things that I had hope in because this one little piece of hidden hope that I had was if the, my material existence didn't work out that I'd go be a monk. But I wasn't interested in being a Christian monk because I thought Christians were small-minded bigots that believed in fairy tales. I was interested in being a monk in a community where I get to control the outcome. So I went to this very regimented, vegan, raw food, Essene Jewish spiritual community out in the middle of nowhere, and I had my little raw vegan religious spirit with me, and I thought that this is going to, I'm gonna be able to eat myself into perfection. I'm 6'3", I was 148 pounds, it's not a healthy look. <laughs> but darn it, I've got the healthiest diet on the planet, and if you try to argue against me, I've got more air than you do, and I'll talk you out of your argument. <laughs> but when I finally realized that that wasn't gonna be the perfect answer to all my problems, I came back to San Diego with my tail between my leg, and you know, it's not in the Bible, but there's a saying that kind of makes sense that when the student's ready, the teacher will appear. And I was finally beaten into a state of reasonableness, more hopeless than I ever had been in my entire life. And I heard a man's testimony. He was Christian and he was sober. And he hit about the same kind of wall that I hit about 10 years sober, but now he's 20 years sober and it's clear though he'd been where I had been, he was no longer there. And I had a new kind of hope. So I sent him an email out into the night and through a bizarre series of circumstances, he ended up receiving the email, we ended up connecting and he led me through this process of 
restoration with God and man through the 12 steps. And it's what we do in Awakened Recovery now, that that moment that his testimony, like Revelation 12, 11, that the, the blood of the lamb and the spoken word of his testimony uh, destroyed the works of the enemy, cast down the accuser from my life, that when I started to know the truth, know God as a person, but also know his principles in a ways that was like applicable, my life started to change. So the third step in this is to make amends to others. And in Matthew 5, 23 and 26, it says, if you enter your place of worship and are about to make an offering and you suddenly remember that there's a grudge that a friend has against you, abandon your offering, leave immediately, go to this friend and make things right. Then and only then come back and work things out with God. Or say you're out on the street and an old enemy accosts you. Don't lose a minute. Make the first move. Make things right with him. You know, I had that, that guy that I hated, and I could only come up with pity. I knew that the, the resentment was eating me alive, that every time I thought of him, I, like, I would re-experience that emotion from when he hurt me. I was stuck in this place. And you know, resentment can actually be a gift from God if I'll let it be. Because if I invite the Holy Spirit into that and say, where is this emotion coming from? That was so long ago. This situation is, isn't even the situation that I'm mad about, but where is that emotion? When was the first time I experienced that emotion? If you let the Holy Spirit take you back into that, he can also set you free from that. But I went through this process, and in recovery, we write down all of our resentments, all of our unforgiveness, all of our fear, all of our misdeeds, all of our uh, jacked up experiences in relationships, and we say, share them with another person. We admit them to ourselves first and to God, and then there's another person that's there as a witness that walks it out with us. And I went through that process of sharing, and I, my mentor in recovery, the guy that I met at 10 years sober, he said, look, you've been around here for a while. I really wanna bust your chops and just deflate your ego a little bit if you'll let me. I'm willing to listen to this inventory, but I'm gonna make this recommendation to you and I hope you'll take, take me up on this. Don't just share this with me, share this with three people. The first person I want you to share this with is somebody that looks up to you. Not somebody that is so like enamored by who you are and spiritually immature that you sharing this stuff with them will crush them but somebody that is spiritually mature but has put you up on a pedestal, this will take you down a couple of notches in their eyes. And then I want you to find a peer, somebody that's going to walk this out with you, somebody that is on your same level, but somebody that you deeply respect because of how they walk and how they live their life, and then I want you to share it with them. And then come share it with me. And I wanted to get all of this done because I was coming up on my 10th anniversary in sobriety and I wanted to have some epic story to share at my anniversary celebration. And so I got this done by that day. And it was a lot of talking and I was really tired. And I thought, you know, I just need to go for a walk. But I was expecting at the end of this, this process that I was gonna feel like I was up on the top of a mountain with the air blowing through me and I'd feel just like this, this joy everlasting, that it would be this like symphony of just delight and it would be an explosion of energy and I didn't feel that way at all. And I thought, did I do something wrong? And I'm walking around the field at my high school and it was weirdly still. It was May 20th, so it's the beginning of summer. La Jolla High, there's usually people playing touch football, running around the field, playing tennis, playing racquetball. There's usually cars driving by. There was none of that. It was dead quiet. I was totally alone. But strangely, I wasn't lonely at all. And I was at my high school, and if you think of somewhere that could bring up feelings of insecurity and fear, I was right there in the thick of it, and I couldn't think of one person that I was scared of, somebody that could step onto that field that would steal my peace. I knew that I didn't have any secrets anymore, that I had a type of freedom that you cannot buy, and there was a peace that like surpasses understanding. I swear I've heard that somewhere before. 
And as I'm walking around this field, I feel my foot sink into that kind of spongy material on the field. And for the first time that I could really remember, I felt totally connected to God and to the world. And I felt like I was in my skin and that it fit. And there's a promise in this recovery literature that says that we may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. And I started weeping because I realized that I had had so many expectations, not just towards what this process was going to be, but just in general, that had stolen my ability to actually appreciate the life that I was living that I lived my life in comparison. I lived my life with regret. I lived my life with resentment and I was never actually there. There could be thousands of people around me singing my praises and I would just think, ah, they're wrong. And I thought about my dad, that I had a very complicated relationship with my natural father to say it nicely. But when I was eight years old, my mom started dating this man, and he started dating me. That come hell or high water, Tuesday night, were boys' night out. That I, it was like, there, there was nothing that could get in the way of boys' night out. We would go, we would go to the movies, we would go to dinner, we would go play mini golf, but like there was something that was happening every Tuesday night, I could count on it. And when he married my mom, he filed for adoption right away and fought really hard to make sure that that adoption was complete before my brother was born because he told me he wanted me to know always that I was his number one son. That his dad, who had been treated unfairly by his parents, sat him down and said, this guy's, this boy's gonna have it a little bit hard. You have to go after him extra. And his dad did the same thing with me. I never felt like the redheaded stepchild, like, tolerated but not loved grandson. I always felt like I was the one that was being pursued. I got special privileges because they knew that I had such an incredible deficit. But because I had this blinder on of what I expected fatherhood to look like, what I wanted my dad to be, which was some like weird twisted fantasy of like the all-American dad of like Ward Cleaver and John Wayne and like some like badass businessman all wrapped into one that I couldn't see the incredible father that I had right before me. And it was only through this process that as I'm stepping in feeling finally connected to myself and to life and to God in this new way that I started weeping, but it wasn't weeping tears of regret. It was weeping tears of joy that even though there were things that had happened in the past, that my future was bright, that this could all be righted, that this relationship could be restored, that I could start actually living for once in my life, that there was still work to do but that God was with me in it. So I wanna run through this and I know I'm out of time, but I think it's really going to, to bless you. That if you know that there are relationships that have distance in your life and you're not quite sure how to build that bridge, I'm just gonna tell you what I did. Start off by getting some great people around you that can speak life into your life and that are spiritually mature, that aren't going to agree with all of the drama, but are going to lead you into a path of reconciliation. Work those things out and then look for your part in what you did to widen this divide. It may only be 5% your fault, but with God, if you own 100% of your 5%, he can make that 99. He can use what the 95%, what the enemy intended for evil, he will use it for good. You don't have to worry about it. The act of forgiveness isn't saying that what was done to you was okay. It's saying, God, this is above my pay grade. I can't deal with this. Just I like I couldn't earn your forgiveness. I can't. I, I, I'm not like the master of wisdom. I don't know these people's past. I don't know. I just know that they hurt me and I don't know what to do with it. So I'm going to give this to you. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to give this to you first. 
and then I'm just gonna treat them like a brother and I'm gonna take 100% responsibility for whatever small part that I paid. And you can call up the person and say, look, I realized that I need to make some big changes in my life and I've been doing some serious soul searching. I realized that I harmed you and if you'd be willing, I'd love to sit down with you and make amends for the harm that I caused you. And when you sit down, say, thank you for meeting with me. I realized if I don't address my past and do my best to right my wrongs, I might not be able to move forward into the bright future that God has for me. So I really thank you for your time and being willing to go through this with me. And by this point, you've worked with somebody, with God, praying through it and made a list of all of the wrong that you've caused. Putting out of your mind, you've given that to God, the wrong that they've done. And you say, these are the specific ways that I know I harmed you. And then list them out. And then say, if there's any others, you know, are there any others that I've forgotten to mention or that I don't know about that you want to tell me about? And then you can sit there and listen. And then ask them, would you like to tell me about how these wrongs affected you? And I'll tell you, I went through about 150 of these appointments. I've got a lot of experience with this stuff and I will tell you that God was in every single one of those conversations. Relationships that I thought would be impossible, impossible to make right, God was right there. The guy that had said all of those bad things about me, I went to him. I was the first person that he saw when he came back into recovery. I was standing outside of a meeting, some God-ordained, perfect situation and he walked up to me and said you're a sight for sore eyes and I'm like man you are too you don't even know and I just threw my arms around him and while we were hugging I said look I harmed you and if you'd be willing I'd love to sit down with you and try to make things right and so we sat down right there on a park bench in front of that meeting and we talked I had played a part in that I'd sowed division in my community that when people were looking to him for mentorship, I would sow seeds of doubt. When there were parties that everybody was invited to, I would go out of my way to make him feel uncomfortable. I didn't start the ball rolling, but man, I gave it speed. And when I sat down and admitted my wrongs, he was like, I can't believe you're doing this after everything that I did to you. And I said, "This, listen, this is what's brought me freedom. And he said, will you show me how to do, do this? And I got to mentor him. And he came to Christ. His life got completely transformed. What we didn't know at the time was that he had a brain tumor that would eventually take him, his life. But when he breathed his last breath, I knew that I would see him again in heaven. It doesn't matter what's happened. There's wisdom to be used in this process, but I'm telling you that it works. And if you're having a hard time accepting forgiveness, maybe because it's because you feel like you haven't earned it. You don't need to earn forgiveness from God. But just like a good father, God doesn't do everything for you. He gives you a process and he gives you his people to walk out that process with. So at the end of the conversation, you'll know when they stop telling you all of the ways that those things have harmed them because if they really were harmed, they probably re rehearsed this moment in their minds for a long time. They'll start repeating themselves. And you'll know, and they know, that they've said everything that they needed to say. And then you can ask, what can I do to right these wrongs? And then within reason, provided it's not illegal, immoral, or indecent, just do that thing. I'll tell you that your most fertile mission field is with the people that you have disconnection with that were once close and that are now far away. If you wanna be a demonstration of God working in your life and see people come to God through the blood of the lamb and by the spoken word of your testimony, try this. Just like God says in tithing, test me in this. I wanna invite you to test him in this. He will be with you in this. 
We have a recovery program, and this is a process that we go through, and we have people walk it out with you. You can text Awaken Recovery to 55525. You can see one of us after service. But I want to tell you that when you accept forgiveness, when you're able to finally let God's forgiveness enter every part of your heart and your mind, you'll know the truth of this verse, Psalm 1611. You will show me the path to life and in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If you have felt numb to life, if you've been achieving but it just hasn't been hitting, if you felt disconnection from people and you feel like you can't hear God, I want to invite you to bow your head and close your eyes right now. Everybody in this room, just bow your head and close your eyes. If you know that you need forgiveness, if you know that there are relationships that are broken in your life, whether it's the relationship with God or relationship with people, at the count of three, I want you to raise your hand so I can include you in a prayer. Is there anybody like that in here? One, two, three. God bless you. 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 Hands going up all over this place. It's so beautiful. Now, while every head is still bowed and every eye is still closed, I want to invite you to join me in a prayer and everybody pray this prayer with me. Father God, I thank you that you know me better than I know myself. That though I've been far away, you've given me a path to come home. God, I thank you for sending your son to pay a debt that I could never pay to restore my seat at your table. I declare that heaven is my home, that God is my father. And God, I ask today that you would surround me with a community that would help me walk out this process of healing and restoration. And God, as I'm healed, I pray that you would give me the strength to do the same with others. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Wow, what an amazing word. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Hey, listen, for more information about our church, go to www.awakenchurch.com or subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't already and download our app. It is amazing. It is chock full of incredible messages, information about upcoming events, and you can even support our ministry if you feel so inclined. We loved having you with us today. We look forward to seeing you again. God bless you. Live a life that is transformative. Bye for now.